The following is an exclusive presentation of News Radio 680 WPTF and 98.5 FM. This is the Turning Your Life Around podcast, presented by 180 Counseling, hosted by founder Sarah Coates, a licensed clinical mental health counselor. In this podcast, Sarah and her team of therapists will dive deep into many topics on mental health care. Here's your host, Sarah Coates. Hello, and welcome to the Turning Your Life Around podcast. We have an awesome episode today, and I'm joined by my friends, Emily Fry and Hannah Guffey. Welcome. Thank you, Sarah. Hello. Welcome, welcome. Thank you. We are going to talk about eating disorders today, and you both are experts in this area. A large part of your practice is working and treating clients who have disordered eating or actually diagnosable eating disorders. I'm really excited to share this information with our audience. Let's jump in here, and I guess my first question that I just want to throw out, what is the difference between disordered eating and an actual eating disorder? Because I know that both of those terms are thrown around and maybe interchangeable. So there's definitely criteria related to eating disorders. Disordered eating can lead into the diagnosed eating disorders. Disordered eating would be more of a... I just think of like yeah. unhealthy patterns, mm-hmm. like yeah. not necessarily to the extent, right, with the diagnoses or diagnosis, but there's like a, just an unhealthy relationship with eating and your thoughts around food, but again, not quite to the severity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not quite meeting like diagnostic criteria that we find in the DSM manual Mm -hmm. to give somebody a a diagnosis. Yeah, that makes sense. There's a lot of terms that have been thrown around that are not in the DSM that we use for diagnosing eating disorders, such as orthorexia. And that Mm -hmm. is what people use to identify as what they consider healthy eating and just wanting to change their way of life with their relationship with food. But then it starts to become a little bit more excessive of an obsessive related to I'm only going to eat between the hours of 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. or some of the intermittent fasting, some of the diets that we hear, the keto diet, the Atkins diet was a big fad several years ago. So throwing out all these terms, it can lead to the disordered eating and kind of like skew what our relationship with food really is is. And then going further and beyond, now we're starting to become treading the line with the eating disorder criteria. What are some of the most common eating disorders that you might see in your practice or your work with clients? Typically, it's anorexia nervosa. And then I would say in close second, it might be bulimia Mm -hmm. and then binge eating disorder. But I feel like binge eating and bulimia are pretty like on par for each other. Like they're almost the same amount of frequency or commonality, Mm -hmm. if you will. So can you break down the difference between those three? What do each of those terms mean? Yeah, I brought the diagnostic criteria for each. With the anorexia nervosa, it usually entails a restriction of energy intake relative to requirements leading to a significantly low body weight. Layman terms, you're not getting enough calories. You're just not consuming enough food to fuel your body properly, which is going to create a deficit in weight. The other is an intense fear of gaining weight or becoming fat. So you're kind of having a distorted view of yourself and then a disturbance in a way in which one's body weight or shape is experienced. So either it could be a restricting type. And I think a lot of people may or may not know this, that with anorexia, there can be a binge eating purging type, which is different Mm. than binge eating disorder. Yes. Yes. So that's kind of the anorexia. And then the bulimia 
It's recurring episodes of binge eating followed by purging. And that can be anything from purposefully purging with vomiting. It can be over-exercising as well. And over-exercising can include up to two hours, maybe two to three times a day. And Mm. a lot of people out there are thinking, wow, that's very excessive. But for someone who is suffering from any of these disorders, it's not enough because their image of themselves is so skewed that uh, in all of these disorders, the, the body is not what they perceive. Mm. What they're looking at a mirror and what you are looking at with them is a completely different individual. You're looking at the same person, but the perception is completely so, different. Yes, yeah, so thwarted. And so then what is the other one? Binge eating disorder. Mm-hmm. I always envision like people just sitting in the room having stashes of food and they just consume large amounts of food in a short, short span. Um, and usually it is hidden. Like they don't do it in front of others. Mm-hmm. I guess a lack of control in that moment when you're eating and you just continue to eat. Mm-hmm. There's those stories of uh, how, how much people do consume in one sitting mm-hmm. and you do hear of whole bags of chips. So we're not talking about the individual sizes. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the actual family size. Family like the, size. Yeah. People have said like even a sheet cake um, that they've gotten. Um, and all of this is consumed at one point. In one sitting. In one sitting. So it's an excessive amount of calorie intake in one time. And again, it is, as Hannah said, it is usually hidden. It's very secretive. And there's a lot of shame surrounding it. One of the indicators to see from someone else is, are there any wrappers or mm-hmm. are there any food? Food under the bed? Is there anything that's gone missing, like utensils or anything like that from the kitchen? Is food going missing? Binge eating disorder is a very, um, it is common eating disorder, and it's also a very challenging one to to identify as well. But someone who engages in binge eating, they don't necessarily do the elimination part of that, right? They're not going to be doing the purging because that would be a separate disorder. Correct. Correct. That would be bulimia. Yes. yes. Yeah, bulimia nervosa. I guess talking about each of these, I wrote down some of the things to like look out for in your adolescence with each of these diagnoses or these disorders. And so with anorexia, usually it's a preoccupation with weight, food, calories, diets, as Emily was saying earlier, how we have these different ones. A lot of times too, I feel like clothing's not necessarily appropriate for the season, more specifically Mm. in spring and summer, right? They're going to be wearing a lot of heavy baggy clothes, layers. They're saying that they're not feeling hungry and they honestly God might not be feeling hungry because they've lost their hunger cues. Sort of being withdrawn, having a disturbed experience with their body, image, weight, shape, all of those things. Having rigid routines, not only with exercise, but also with food, right? Like I can only eat Mm. X amount at this time and I can only have certain foods and all sorts of things. Um, So it's just very rigid. The rules associated. There are a tremendous amount of rules related to anybody suffering from any of these disorders, particularly anorexia nervosa. Mm -hmm. Um, And rules can go so far as I can only have this specific bread where it's the low calorie, or I can only have diet sodas, or I can only do 15 chips Mm -hmm. or one cookie like very very rigid Mm -hmm. very rigid yeah so and it's always interesting we're like so who taught you these and you're like well I don't know I'm like well did you tell yourself one day like how did we get to these food rolls and it's always interesting they don't understand that this is a food roll it's just what they know and it's what they do Mm -hmm. and so then when you can break it down and bring it like well this is a rule you've set for yourself so if you've set it we can also learn to 
to navigate it and, and break it, if you will, and relearn healthier ways to, mm-hmm. to look at food and how to eat mm-hmm. and, again, less rigid. Yeah. I had heard before that, especially with anorexia, that it does a a lot of times come out of an effort to control something. Mm -hmm. So maybe there's things in this person's life that are very out of control. And so what can they control? And a lot of time it is their food intake and their restriction. Is that what you find with adolescents as well? Yes. Yeah, usually it is, especially now, right? In the pandemic, there's so many things going on that like we feel so out of control. And this is something that we can absolutely take control over. Mm. And even there's found some like interesting neuroscience stuff behind it about Mm. how our chemicals in our brains. Well, I mean, we all know this. We eat food, there's a reward. Mm. And so by changing that and altering that then again you can kind of dictate when that reward happens and when you can feel the good and all of those things and it was really fascinating Mm. i don't know if we can we post things on 180's website of just like fun fact information about like the neuroscience yeah that would be awesome especially even on our facebook pages because our locations have facebook pages yeah Yeah, maybe i can share that on there because i I don't want to read everything because it's yes it's a research study but it is just fascinating so note to the audience yes look on our facebook pages for the following information. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and it just talks about the, I always call them the feel-good hormones or neurotransmitters and how they're so impacted by our, our food. Mm-hmm. And then I think that carries over into why people with eating disorders do what they do because there is, you do get that chemical high mm-hmm. from engaging or not engaging in eating mm-hmm. disorders. This is why I classify eating disorders with addiction. Mm-hmm. And it's not a chemical addiction that we think of as alcohol or marijuana or um, even some other drugs such as methamphetamines or heroin. But it's a process addiction. Mm-hmm. And the same feel-good hormones that you're describing, Hannah, is what's driving some of these things where it's that they're getting a high essentially off of either the over-exercising or the elimination process or the restriction and they're getting that control they're getting some sort of reward and they're able to say this is good for me this is what I want this is what I like and then the feedback comes from other people of the the Mm -hmm. body look so now we've also got those messages from from friends and family then we've got messages from the media and commercials to say do this do that so there's this reward process that starts to play whether we know it or not at this time. So absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Hannah, what were some of the neuroscience little bits and pieces that you found interesting? So this one's just talking about the neurotransmitters. Serotonin is one that I feel like a lot of people know. And so given that serotonin helps control everything from memory to learning, sleep, mood, and appetite, differences may have been present before the onset of the eating disorder. It says serotonin alterations in binge eating disorder appear fairly similar to those found in bulimia, although the research is more limited in this area. Researchers generally believe that individuals with binge eating disorder also suffer from chronically low serotonin levels, which is thought to be contributing factor to the binge eating when we're trying to relieve the depressed mood. So even just like that, who would have thunk, right, Mm -hmm. that our neurons are actually can be a a contributing factor, as it says, to an eating disorder. That's fascinating. I mean, there's so much science behind some of this stuff or all of this stuff really I mean when people start to dig deep and I guess the goal is to work with someone who specializes in eating disorders who can actually help people dig deeper and understand the why behind the behaviors so I know you were talking through the anorexia Mm -hmm. criteria Emily can you share a little bit more about what is the binge eating criteria what is the bulimia 
nervosa criteria? The binge eating criteria is more on that excessive eating in a short period of time. So we're not talking it's a full day's worth of some of the food intake that we've described. It's a very short period of time within a 20-30 minute span. Again, it's some of the hiding that we're doing or that people are doing related to these eatings. Again, the shame that is associated with it. We're eating until we're uncomfortably full. Mm -hmm. So typically our brains are able to say, hey, we're full. Let's start to slow down. Maybe stop. People with binge eating are not able to hear those hunger cues or those fullness cues. So they just keep eating as well as just feeling disgusted, depressed about themselves related to it. So it's not just the act of doing it. It's the feelings that have come afterwards, the guilt and the shame related afterwards that is related to the binge eating. Bulimia nervosa is more of it within a certain time area of what's going on. We have a food intake and typically, yes, it can be more than what we consider as normal intake. What happens afterwards is there is an elimination and related to it, such as either vomiting, purging, in addition to that over-exercising and even laxatives. Laxatives, diuretics, all of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what we see on TV is saying, hey, you know, if you're feeling bloated, take this, this, do that, feel better. And it is abuse. And it does lead, all of these disorders do lead to long-term health consequences. Mm -hmm. Well, that was going to be my next question. Like, what is the long-term consequence, the outcome of engaging in any one of these three disorders we're talking about? What happens if somebody purges over a long time frame? I mean, how is that 10 years from now? So some of the physical aspects that happen is because of the acid in the stomach, Mm -hmm. the esophagus starts to get worn away. So teeth start to become calcified as well. And there's a higher risk of losing teeth. People, when when they go to the dentist, the dentist can identify if there is something going on related to excessive elimination through purging. Other risk factors include amenorrhea. And that word simply means loss of a period. So that's one of the biggest identifiers for a female is do we have a period? And what, what essentially is happening is the body does not have enough fat to carry a child. So this is the body's way of saying, hey, I'm in a famine state. I need to protect myself. I need to protect my other organs, my heart, my liver, my brain. I need to protect these. So what's going on is let's get rid of the organs that we don't need right now. And it's very interesting that our body knows this, Mm -hmm. but we have all this food accessible, but our body is saying we don't. Yeah, that we're in hibernation mode, like we're just stopping. It's very interesting that our body is really trying to protect us. Another indicator for people to be able to identify and from someone else suffering from an eating disorder disorder is something called lanugo. Lanugo is fine little hairs. That's also an indicator when someone is malnourished and it can happen to someone who looks malnourished or looks what we call is normal simply because the body is not getting the nutrition. Lanugo can appear mostly on the arms and even on the face. So it's trying to keep the body warm. Mm -hmm. The body is just trying to protect itself and stay alive. Mm -hmm. So fascinating, which goes back to that neuroscience that there's so many intricacies within our body that we don't know that are going on, Mm -hmm. but are having this knowledge now are good indicators of like, oh, these are things again, that I can look out for or notice Mm -hmm. and from there make moves with Mm -hmm. that. Ultimately, the risk and unfortunately, this is the risk with long term eating disorders is electrolyte imbalances, liver failure, and ultimately heart attack, possibly even death. So the biggest thing critical is at the first sign of any eating disorder is to seek help. Mm -hmm. 
the chances of survival at that point is greater when we are able to higher. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people automatically think eating disorders and they associate females with eating disorders, young females, mm -hmm. adolescent females, Mm -hmm. right? That's Mm -hmm. what, that's who they think has eating disorders is adolescents, females. Mm -hmm. But I know the prevalence in males, young males and older males, just as prevalent or almost as prevalent. So Mm -hmm. let's talk about that for a minute. Men suffer from eating disorders. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, there's estimated to be one in three men to suffer from an eating disorder in their lifetime. That's a lot of men. That's a lot of men. (laughs) (laughs) That's a third of the men out there who are going to suffer from this. And it could be more. And the reason why I say it could be is because the stigma, first of all, around getting mental health, the stigma also around it's a young white woman's disease. Right. It's not supposed to happen to a man. It's not supposed to happen to a person of color. It's not supposed to happen to someone in their 50s or 60s. So for men to feel that emotion and that shame of, I may have something that is considered a young woman's disease. So there's a lot of men out there who may be undiagnosed. a lot of the bodybuilding mm-hmm. and weightlifters. Yeah, uh, like wrestlers, even in high school, right? Like where they have to make cut and so they can only eat X amount or they have to eat excessive amounts to get to that weight. I know my husband was a wrestler in high school and he tells me about the things that he had to do. And I'm like, that's just not okay. <laughs> like that's that's borderline like disordered eating or possible eating disorder because of the things that they had to do just to make weight. Banned and ed- educated. Like yeah. the, the educated. trainers yes. need to be educated. Yes. Absolutely. Good- for yes. sure. Men do suffer, unfortunately, just, just like women do. Mm-hmm. We were talking earlier about some indicators, adolescents, I think, with anorexia. Mm-hmm. Are there also indicators for adolescents that might alert a parent that their child or adolescent is engaging in binge eating or a purging disorder of some sort? Evidence of binge eating, the disappearance of food, noticing that they leave for the bathroom after eating, appears uncomfortable eating around others, and sort of like with the elimination via purging, so like swelling of your cheeks, Mm -hmm. of your face, drinks excessive amounts of water, kind of looks bloated, using excessive gum, mints, things like that, brushing of teeth to kind of cover up Mm -hmm. what they've been doing. Are these, Emily, are those indicators similar for someone that might have a spouse or an adult friend who is engaging in some of these behaviors? Actually, the differences between adolescents and adults is very little, Mm. very little. And the reasons to develop an eating disorder a little bit later in life are different reasons. As adolescents, there's the school, the education, um, very little control for an adolescence. But for an adult, we're experiencing stress from financials. Now with COVID going on, there's a lot of stress related to that. So these warning signs are found typically in adults as well. It's just they're a little bit easier to hide it at Mm. first. Right. Because maybe they might be living alone or they might have a spouse or partner who's unaware Mm -hmm. of some of these behaviors I think a parent might be sometimes more alerted because they're caring for the child. Maybe they can see in a little closer to some of the behaviors. Plus the excuse of I'm only on this diet, right? I'm only on the diet. Right. This is the diet I'm on. Yeah. 
right, like an adult, I'm doing keto <laughs> or I'm doing mm-hmm. Atkins or whatever. And maybe a spouse or partner doesn't question that, mm-hmm. you know. But also to know that, like, just because you are doing a diet doesn't mean that you're, it's going to lead to an eating yes, disorder. Exactly. So we're not putting those red flags out right. there, but <laughs> just being aware. Right. And that's a good point, though, because I've done keto. You know, a lot of different adults try different things because they do want to lose some weight. And sometimes it's necessary, you know. I mean, I, we're, I don't think we're promoting the other side over here and saying, be obese, it doesn't matter, (laughs) because that's just as unhealthy. But how would you, if you have a client in your room and they are talking about a certain diet or a certain diet restriction they're engaged in this month or this week, how would you differentiate that between someone who has an eating disorder? Like what would alert you that this is okay, but this might not be? I look first for some of the physical symptoms, such as the lanugo, the amenorrhea, um, how often is it happening, uh, those specific diagnostic criteria. And if I'm not seeing those, then we start looking into the mentality of what's behind the, mm-hmm. what, what's behind this diet. Like, yeah. why are we doing this? Mm-hmm. Is it because you're wanting to just feel better? Like you want to have more energy throughout the day and the food out there that we sometimes consume on a fast paced basis is not the most healthiest right. of choices. However, it is convenient. And some of those convenience foods do not provide the energy that maybe we need. So what I start to look at, I talk to them about the mentality of the food, what's going on behind the diet. And is this long term? Is this short term? And what are your intentions? What are your intentions like for what's the end goal? Yes. Yeah, exactly. That, that's a good way to put it, Hannah. It's like, what is the end goal? Mm-hmm. Um, if it's to lose five pounds or even to gain five pounds, then okay. But if we have an excessive need to keep going Mm -hmm. further, something else that is important to just be aware of as well, considering the dire need of awareness and education related to eating disorders is specifically with anorexia nervosa is the high risk of suicide, ideations, attempts, and completions. Eating disorders are a very serious mental illness, just as any other mental illness out there. And with any of the eating disorders, we do need to have a larger treatment team than what we do with depression or anxiety. With eating disorders, it's essential to have a therapist, to have your primary care doctor, to have a psychiatrist, and to have a nutritionist Mm -hmm. as well. All four of those are essential for having long-term success. It's like the core of your treatment, yeah, Mm -hmm. indefinitely. Absolutely. Without the nourishment, we're not going to be able to get as far in therapy uh, simply because what Hannah was describing, the brain shrinks essentially, and the neurotransmitters are just not there. And and to be able to incorporate food, have a healthy relationship with it, and to work on the nutrition piece allows the other piece of going deeper, understanding what's going on with this, what's driving it. So if a parent is listening today and they have a son or daughter that they might now be alerted to some indicators that they might have disordered eating or potentially an eating disorder. What do you think is the first step a parent should do, Hannah? I think going to your primary care physician and also just having a physical, just checking in there. And then I always recommend a full CBC count, getting blood work done to see if there are any deficits there. And that could be a good indicator as well. Like if we're not fueling our body properly, there are going to be deficits in various places. And so that's a good starting point. Your primary care 
physician can then kind of direct you to a therapist or a nutritionist, a psychiatrist. Like they're a great starting point. Mm. And you have a spouse or partner that you suspect might have some disordered eating. How do you even approach that conversation with them? Yeah, it can be a very difficult conversation. And just being honest with your spouse or partner, the communication is key. If you don't feel comfortable to bring it up on your own, that's where a therapist or uh, someone else, a third party would be very beneficial just so that you don't feel that fear of what they're going to say. And also to recognize the cognition is not going to be there as it was if they did not have an eating disorder or even disordered eating. So just being able to to be honest with them, being honest with yourself too. And if your partner or spouse is not able or willing to hear, making sure that you get the self-care and the support that you need to work on some of the stuff that's going on in the home. There's a couple things I want to piggyback off of that. Just thinking for like spousal and partner support. So if your partner or spouse is seeking treatment and maybe you don't feel like they're being as open and correct me if I'm wrong, you have the opportunity, even if they've not signed a HIPAA for you to speak or for the therapist or anyone to speak with you, you can still say like, hey, this is what I'm seeing at home. I'm not sure if they're being completely honest. You may never receive um, anything back from that therapist, but that way you also have just advocated for them. Yes. Mm -hmm. And you know that you're doing what you can in this situation. And then the other part is for parents to have their own therapist because you see what your child is going through, your adolescent And that's a lot. And you need help as well to be navigated and guided through this time because you're going to struggle and you're going to have difficulties understanding what your child is going through. And they are having difficulties understanding what they're going through. And so for everyone basically to Mm -hmm. have their own therapist and a family therapist and all that, just to make sure that everyone is being their best self and getting the support and help that they can and need. Eating disorders are a lot more complicated Mm -hmm. than what seems to be out there. That's one of the myths is how uncomplicated they are. And it's just eat, just eat, have a hamburger, right? Yeah. Uh, If it was that easy, I saw that eye roll and I I have the same, same eye roll. (laughs) It's really, it's not just eat. It is so much more than that. And again, with what Hannah was saying of needing therapists for all family members, because it's just like addiction, it affects the entire family. And we as parents just want the best for our kids. So we need to learn, are we enabling or are we supporting? Right. Am I going to get what my child is asking because at least she's eating or at least he's eating? Or is this engaging the eating disorder? We got to get rid of some of the scales. Mm-hmm. We, I'm sure we all Smash have at least... <laughs> That is a great thing. I think we should yes. like all get our scales and like go just, out there and just yeah. smash it. And also yes. very therapeutic. If, yes. if you've got any rage, just go out and smash your scale. Um, you're not hurting anyone or yourself. So right. I'm I'm in full support of that. Pro that. Also, just to be able to really understand with what's going on with you, whether it's yourself going through an eating disorder or a partner, a child, a significant other, a family member. I always joke but not jokes. Scales are for fish. They weren't designed for us. The number gives us nothing. It is just a number and there is no power behind it. We give power a lot of times to a specific number, but it means nothing to us. We are still who we are regardless of what that number means. It's the gravitational pull on the earth. Exactly. (laughs) That number. Yes. Yes. Well, this has been really, really helpful and I hope enlightening to the listeners. And if you are listening and some of this resonates with you, maybe for yourself or for a family member, 
please know that you're not alone and there is a lot of help out there for you. Like Hannah shared, maybe reach out to your primary care provider first. And then of course, when you get to the point that you need a therapist, we here at 180 Counseling can support you in that. We have many therapists practice-wide, Hannah Guffey and Emily Fry being two of them who treat eating disorders and specialize in addiction. Emily specializes in addiction as well, and we can help you or your family member. So find us today at 1-80counseling.com. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Turning Your Life Around podcast presented by 180 Counseling with five triangle locations to serve you. Learn more at 1-80counseling.com. This has been an exclusive presentation of News Radio 680 WPTF and 98.5 FM, a Curtis Media Group station.